Whoa, you like to think that you're immune to the stuff, oh yeah. It's closer to the truth to say you can't get enough. You know you're gonna have to face it, you're addicted to love. Ah, uh, man, I just love that song, don't you? Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Addicted to Romance. Americans spent over a billion dollars on romance novels in 2018. I'm your host, Amy, and I contributed to that billion dollar industry last year and this one. Um, as a avid romance enthusiast, I found that I was devouring the products of the industry, but I really didn't have anyone that shared my enjoyment after reading one of these books. Or if I'm being honest, I didn't have anybody to wildly flail my arms at like Kermit and share my general sense of kerfluffledness after I finished reading a book. So that's why I started this podcast. It's basically a platform for me to talk about the most recent book I've read and treat it with the same general sarcasm that I treat just about everything in my life. I'm... I like to think of myself as a suburbanite Wednesday Adams, but if I'm being honest with myself, I'm nowhere near as cool, and I do not pull off the braids as well as Christina Ricci did. This book that I'll be discussing today is called Eight Simple Rules for Dating a Dragon by Carolyn Sparks. The back of the book reads, Truth or Dare? Gwynor is an elf able to track down the cause of a certain illness and heal it, a valuable asset to her people. But when she is thrust into the realm of the dragons, she discovers a haunted place of power, passion, and magic, one that is plagued by an ancient curse. When she meets the smoldering General Silas Dravenko, Gwen knows she's encountered a whole new world of trouble. She's been raised never to trust a dragon. So why does making a deal with the devil feel so good? Silas has no way of saving the royal family he served for years, but when a beautiful, innocent elf comes bursting into his world, Silas is awakened to desire in a way that he's never felt before. But how can he trust a sworn enemy? And how can he live without her? Like most blurbs, this one sounds like it was written by somebody who didn't actually read the book, just listen to the author describe it over drinks at a bar. Eight Simple Rules for Dating a Dragon is book three in the Embraced series. The previous two books are How to Tame a Beast in Seven Days and So I Married a Sorcerer. I haven't really read either one of these books, so I'm kind of flying blind into the series. But if you're looking at thinking of picking up any of the books in this series, you'd probably be surprised, as I was, that this isn't an urban fantasy setting. Rather, it's a traditional swords and sorcery high fantasy world. I'll be honest, I was entirely ready to open up the book, start reading about how dragons existed in the modern day, and then have at least one chapter open with the phrase, Do not meddle in the affairs of dragons, for you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. Well, joke's on you, dragons. Humans don't taste good with ketchup. As a pork like meat, we're probably better with condiments like curry ketchup or mustard. Dropping those nerdy jokes about long pig and cannibalism. Not your average romance novel discussion, for sure.
Like I said, this is why I need somebody to flail at. Um, anywho. The first intro to the heroine that we get is Gwenor the elf, angsting about how different she is with her lavender blue eyes, white blonde hair, and pointed ears. Oh no, what a hardship. How terrible. Poor Gwenor is an elf, and so devastatingly pretty. But before you get too far into the Mary Sue hating, um, turns out elves in this world, at least to their neighbors, seem more like the elves of legend. You know, when you actually listen to the tales of the fair folk and how they would kidnap babies and chase people through the woods doing the, uh, the hunt until the people collapse from exhaustion. You know, that's actually what the elves of this world seem to be like, at least compared or at least from what the people outside of that culture believe. And it sounds like they're at war, just about every nation is at war with the elves. So Gwynor, being a super special, not at all cruel warrior-like elf being raised among humans, I mean, still kind of a Mary Sue, um, but it's understandable why people might not want to associate with her even though she is devastatingly pretty. Still Mary Sue, though. Well, I take that back. So, it's a Mary Sue-like quality. Which is not to say that every character that has a quality like this is automatically a Mary Sue. In order to be a true Mary Sue, of course, you have to have several qualities like this that are so-called flaws, but aren't really flaws. Everybody loves you. You can do no wrong. Um, that kind of thing. So, not... Gwynor is likely not a Mary Sue, but she's kind of hovering on that boundary, if I'm honest. The book opens with Gwynor out picking flowers with a child from one of the relationships of the previous books. And I always kind of have a problem with the when the characters from previous books show up in the current romance novel. It seems... And I always hesitate to say this because it's really difficult to explain properly, but it seems incestuous. Like, you as the author, we as the reader, we know what these characters are like. There's a shortcut to creating, and that's the real problem that I have with them, I think, is that they are a shortcut to establishing the character of a person, given that we've the assumption is we've already read the previous books and so because those characters that we most likely already know like the current characters we should just automatically assume that we need to be liking the current characters as well so maybe incestuous isn't the right word it's just the most appropriate word that I've been able to think of for this feeling that I've had about this shortcut. Anyway, so Gwenor in a meadow picking wildflowers with this small child who speaks in an adorable misinterpretation of child wisps. Like, just say the kid lisps. Otherwise, I'm going to come out the other side of this book joining the kid in speech therapy. And then a few pages in, Gwenor and the kid get abducted by aliens and whisked away to the Dragon Kingdom. 
where during this trip she finds that she can talk to dragons mentally. But at the same time, she can talk to these dragons. She lives with a shapeshifter in the household, the royal household, not her personal household, and is still somehow completely unable to comprehend that A, either other people can talk to dragons, or B, that the dragons might also be shapeshifters. Again, this is currently nuts to me because one of the characters that is referenced as like showing up in previous books and will likely get a book of his very own lives in her fucking household. She lives with a person who shapeshifts in her household doesn't believe or even consider that dragons might be able to shapeshift. They clearly say in the shame information pool, the thing that you tell the dragon when you talk to him is the thing that the man knows when you talk to him. But it's such a fucking mystery, it completely blows her fucking mind. Which literally has me pulling my Jackie Chan face to my cats and going, Gwen, you foolish fool. The cat's also not impressed by her behavior. Also, they're fucking cats. They don't speak English. Although maybe they do. Maybe my cats are also shapeshifters and they've just been ignoring me since they're lazy little fucks enjoying a free ride. If so, they're creepy little perverts since I can't be alone for a minute, not even to use the bathroom or change clothes. I'm on to you, cats. I fucking see what you're doing. Meow. I'm on to you. Gwen and the kid are being held hostage because the queen of the Dragon Kingdom has gone starkers. Except that Gwen uses her innate magic to determine that the queen is actually being poisoned. And so now I'm... Now you've, now you've pulled me in. Now you've brought me in on a completely different level besides the relationship of the characters. Because this is gonna sound... This is gonna sound creepy as fuck, but I enjoy learning about poisons, and so I'm re I was really looking forward to figuring out what the poison was and if that you know matched what I knew about poisons. The history of poisons and the symptoms of exposure are other interests of mine because no matter how hard I try, I can't just sit around reading romance novels all day every day. So I had my own theory as I was reading the book as to what the poison was. If you choose to pick up this book and read it yourself, you are welcome to share your theories with me. Um, uh, reach out and share your theories with me. I certainly want to see if others who are fans of poison like I am... God, that just sounds so creepy to say. <laughs> if you're fans of the symptoms of poisoning and the like, and you want to share your theories with me as you're reading the book, feel free to reach out and share. Uh, then I'll know that we're weird together. <laughs> the designated love interest in this book is Silas. Silas? I never know how to pronounce that, that name. Uh, we'll go with Silas, and maybe I'll stay consistent. Silas is a general in the army for this nation that kidnapped uh, Gwynor and the little princess that she was watching. 
And so as a general, he's had to try and balance these rumors of a curse surrounding the queen's madness, his belief that she's being poisoned, and the king's desperate, almost manic desire to go to war with all the surrounding countries at once. I'm not that big on politics in general, but I'm pretty sure that on the list of bad ideas, that one falls right up there with starting a land war in Asia, or making a bet with a Sicilian. Silas, Silas, I've already forgotten how I wanted to pronounce it. He is insistent that Gwen use her powers to help him prove that the king and queen have utterly lost their shit and aren't under a curse. And then what happens is that these two characters, along with some allies, some of them who are from previous books, some of them who are entirely new to this book, work out what's causing the regent's madness mixed in with a healthy dose of growing sexual attraction between the protagonists. This is another one where everything kind of falls or happens in a shorter time span. It's a little bit easier to swallow this time around because there's honestly a real sense of chemistry between the characters that doesn't depend just on their attraction to each other. I mean there is a lot of attraction between the two, but their compatibility with each other doesn't rely on just their attraction. And two, once the secret behind the madness is finally revealed, it did satisfy my little poison-loving heart. The reason that the Queen's loyal subjects have been kidnapping children is because they think that it'll help her get closure for children that she's lost. Okay, so I'm not a therapist, I don't play one on TV, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night. I don't think you need to do any one of those things to know that this is not an appropriate coping mechanism. One of my favorite moments in the book is when Gwen discovers that her kidnapping is not the first, and in fact was one of many kidnappings. And so I present to you my favorite part, the dramatic reenactment. Gwen. So, you just steal kids from their families. Silas. Well, yeah, but the queen usually gets tired of them after they grow older than the children she lost. So about three years or so. Gwen. Um, well, I guess that's- wait, what the fuck? Years? They're gone from their family for years. Silas. Um, so about that... We don't actually return them? What? It's okay, though. They're adopted by very loving families. Okay, so let me get this straight. You take kids from a family that probably love them, but the stranger who needs a lot of therapy, and that's before the neurological damage done by this poison, be their parent, no, no, hold on, Silas, I'm not done here. I am well aware that there's probably nursemaids, but I would like to point out that they are also strangers. Then, once the queen gets tired of them, like a painting that she doesn't like anymore, you hand them off to a completely different set of strangers. Am I getting that right? 
I mean, I want to say yes, but from the tone of your voice, I can tell that's not the answer I should be giving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hello? Avoidant attachment disorder called. It wants to let you know that you're doing just fine. That's one of the things that's quietly horrifying when I actually stop to think about it. The fact that they've been kidnapping for years kids from their families and then not even returning them to their families or not even saying, hey, can we just like foster your kid for a few years? I mean, they're basically going to be royalty and then we'll return them to you completely spoiled. Why not? Why wasn't that a thing? They knew this was going to keep happening after the first, I don't know, five kids? Why did they have to go about this in such a cruel way? Because it doesn't matter if the kids go on to loving parents. Those are the formative years of their childhood, and a lot of stuff is just getting planted in the way they grew up that is going to take years and years of therapy to undo and it's very clear that therapy is not a thing that exists in this world. Alright, so now we're gonna move on to the ratings part of the episode. Think of this as the part that has a lot in common with whose line is it anyway. I completely make it up. There's no actual standard that anything is being rated against and it doesn't fucking matter anyway. So, the sex and intimacy scenes get three and a half jonquils. Now, jonquil, as the internet tells me, represent desire in the language of flowers. And then I googled what the hell a jonquil was and learned it was a daffodil. So, send your sweetie a bouquet of daffodils if you're horny, is the moral of that story. There's a mix of flowery metaphors and some plainer terms, which kind of reflects how this book is a mix of traditional feudal fantasy, but with modern societal mores. I'm honestly still totally weirded out that they decide to have sex for the first time after someone dies, and Gwen is accused of murder, but Silas tells her the equivalent of hashtag not all dragon people, so it's all okay. That was sarcasm, by the way. I'm wearing my sarcasm face. I enjoyed how the attraction built up uh, between the two characters, and I thought that there was a nice and enjoyable ramp up to the inevitable sex scene. Um, it was a pleasant change. I'll leave it at that. Female agency. Okay, let's talk female agency. I am so excited, I can't even! This is me not wearing my sarcasm face. I was worrying after the last episode that the Bechdel test might be an unrealistic standard to hold these books to given the nature of the genre. And then I read this one, where the weight of the plot rests on Gwen and people other than Silas to address this issue that's affecting the regents, and I may or may not have cheered out loud when I realized halfway through the book that yes, it absolutely does pass the Bechdel test. Gwen exists outside of her attraction to Silas, 
And of course, that is a large portion of the book because, again, that's the nature of the genre in that I am here reading this book because I want to read about these two getting it on. But I find myself identifying with her because she is maybe attracted to this general of the dragon army and also he is heir to the dragon kingdom. But damn it, she's got a job to do and she's gonna see it be done. And it was really nice. It's always really nice when I read these books and there's a plot. It's a reasonable plot. It doesn't have a lot of glaring plot holes. The villain is an actual threat. You know, when there is a villain, not saying that there always is a villain, but for a book that creates this mystery and then holds true to that mystery as well as juggling the building attraction between these two characters without taking it for granted that just because they're the protagonists of the story they're gonna end up together at the end I think that's great I think that the little bit of reluctance that Gwen shows towards the end where she's like oh I want to but I can't I mustn't is kind of shoehorned in um, it's kind of shoehorned in I feel like it it feels like her insecurities in the beginning were quiet for a bit and then rushed in at the end to add a little bit more tension and then were alleviated I mean all in all, I did not expect to enjoy this book as much as I did. I'll be honest, I picked it up entirely for the somewhat cringy title and the rules when they're mentioned are still kind of cringy, but I would be interested in finding the first two books and reading them. The book is pretty clear that there's still two heroines left unmatched, and I would even pick those up if I came across them. I don't know necessarily that I would seek them out for the sake of reading this particular author specifically. Um, they were definitely enjoyable though, and if I were to see them in my store, specifically this series, I would probably pick them up. The titles, though, I mean, they, they have to be chosen by someone in publishing, like an editor or something, because I, I don't know, they're so cringy to me. I have a really hard time believing that somebody who wrote the main plot didn't have to shoehorn in these rules. But then again, maybe they did. Maybe that was entirely uh, something that Sparks did to, because she found a title she liked and she was going to make it work. I don't know. Ooh, so in conclusion, this has been Addicted to Romance with your bi-weekly dose of sarcasm and romance, aka the younger version of Arsenic and Old Lace. And remember, if you should happen to run afoul of any dragons, Remember to ask them if they've checked the expiration dates on their condiments. The time they spend trying to find a non-expired bottle in their fridge might just give you that slight chance to escape. <laughs>
I want your drama. The touch of your hand. I want your leather studded kiss in the sand. I want your love. Love love love, I want your love, love love love, I want your love.